Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. Today, we're discussing the 2003 films Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Now, wait, you may be saying, didn't you just cover those films? Well, Guy and I did, but those episodes were our traditional, ridiculously detailed walkthroughs, complete with copyrighted bad jokes. Today, we're just having a freeform discussion about both films as a whole with some great guests. In other words, an episode people may actually want to listen to. I'm your host, and if I had written these films, they'd be called Put Bill in Prison for a Few Years and Then Bring Him Before a Parole Board. My co-host is Guy, who lost his Hanzo sword in the recycling bin. And I don't even recycle, so I don't know how that happened. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today, yes, for the first time ever, we have multiple guests, are Sarah Rose Siskin and Andrew Heaton. Hello, Sarah. Howdy. Thanks for having me on the inaugural duo episode. Yeah. And hello, Heaton. <laughs> hello, hello. I wasn't told Guy would be here, but okay. <laughs> I thought I'd have to miss it. <laughs> so, Sarah, we actually added this film to our rage list at your suggestion when we did the Thelma and Louise episode with you, which feels about like five years ago. I know. So what made you suggest these films? Um, I Maybe I was mad. I don't know why how it came out i think it was like i think it had to do something like feminist rage movies like something about like oh, that hmm. and this one being um a particularly good revenge film because like thelma and louise is kind of fame it's like kind of famous for not ending well spoiler alert <laughs> spoiler alerts are always great when you say them after the spoiler you know, in case you need to time travel and uh, not hear this. Hey, split. Sarah, I, I haven't actually seen Thelma and Louise. Is that why you get so weird whenever we drive by a canyon? Because you get really fucking weird <laughs> when we like drive by canyons. I just like to hold canyons. your hand, Heaton. I just like to <laughs> hold it really tight. I'll take affection wherever I can get it. Anyway, I think it was part of the re like feminist rage revenge genre. And it's just such a fantastic film it's like i love tarantino films even though i am the most squeamish person when it comes to violence and it is a testament to how much i like tarantino that i am like very physically uncomfortable while watching his films and yet somehow still enjoy them <laughs> so heaton do you have a background with kill bill or uh, i watched it really late in the game i saw it for the first time about four years ago and and rewatched it for this show so i this is not a show that i grew up with i like tarantino films but to, to tip the deck a little bit, my overall impression of Tarantino is I like Tarantino, but he is making violence porn for me that's very beautiful, but it's kind of like that Liam Neeson violence porn kind of thing where it's just very, very, very violent. And like watching Kill Bill, I do enjoy it, but I don't know if I like the part of me that enjoys it uh, because <laughs> it is leaning so hard into that violence. And then earlier today, I was I was thinking about it and I was like... If you cut up, hold on, I'm going to back up here. Uh, we haven't talked about porn yet. Let me bring that up. Uh, so <laughs> there, there was a podcast, I think it's on hiatus now, but it was called Two Girls, One Mike. And it was mm -hmm. a porn review podcast. Sarah, were you ever on there? No, sadly. One of the best podcasts, though. If they ever, if they bring it back, I will absolutely recommend you. Oh, um, I, I was on there three times, maybe. And what they would do is they'd say, we're going to review the plot to porns on this porn cast. <laughs> And they'd send you the link and they'd say, now we're reviewing the plot so you can skip through the sex. You don't, if you feel squeamish about the penetration, you don't need to watch any of it. We're only going to do the interstitials between them, right? And then you you watch it and you're like, that's only eight minutes of this 52 minute. <laughs> well, 
And then I got to thinking about Kill Did Bill. Did they and ever I was like, fix the sink? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching Kill Bill and I was like, if you cut out the violence, it's an eight minute film. There's really not a lot <laughs> other than revenge killing. Well, I will push back on that. I think Tarantino structured this brilliantly, which is the first film is almost all action in a way that now we would describe as kind of a John Wick sort of film, right? You go to John Wick, you know you're going to see him shooting people through the entire film. The second film is almost all character building. There's very little violence in it. And there's even opportunities for violence that you expect are going to devolve into it. And then, uh, you know, it just takes another direction. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I feel like Tarantino very consciously decided the first film would bring people in for the killing and blood and, you know, et cetera. And the second film, they'd come expecting that. And then he'd hit them with a whole bunch of story and development and such. And even... I mean, again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but the final fight is not at all what you would expect. It takes 30 seconds, and mm -hmm. she uses this, you know, five-point heart thing, and he's dead, and that's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it totally subverts your expectations in that way. There are some weirdly touching, violent-tinged moments in the films. The two moments that stand out to me are in the beginning in Kill Bill 1, when she's going after Copperhead the mother that is now living this domestic life with a, with a daughter and they're it's it's this is the beginning scene of violence other than the initial gunshot and they're fighting 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 and then this girl comes home from school and there's this brief visual exchange between the two and mm -hmm. it establishes that the characters here have a moral core they have a they have certain mm -hmm. standards that they are trying to live up to as much as Uma Thurman wants to kill Copperhead she's not going to do it in front of her daughter that she's willing to go along with this act of I'm just your mom's friend that's visiting and all of that, right? And, which is actually touching, I think, and, and probably the most touching part of the first mm -hmm. film. And then in the, in the second film, when Bill dies and he's doomed, he's committed to death, and, and he says, how do I look? And she says, ready. There's this like kind of begrudging respect and warmth and residual relationship that's happening there that I do really enjoy. I think like the intermittent violence makes those moments land like there's just like all this like tension and like the looks and it's because you're kind of anticipating like what is she gonna rip his eye out or kiss him i can't tell like there's so much tension Jesus, <laughs> and that it makes like the moments the acting sort of like accentuates everything and yeah i mean i'm squeamish as all hell around violence but i think like i don't know he makes it a little bit cartoonish that makes me a little bit better at differentiating it from real life like the blood is kind of an unreal color and there's fountain-esque yes <laughs> exactly it's like it's like a bellagio squirting out of someone's spinal cord <laughs> yes and it has that sort of like blue raspberry um slushy kind of look to mm. it so yeah i don't know there's that and the thing the other thing that i like about it is he's clearly making a lot of like heady cinematography and film references and i don't know all of them i can get like mm -hmm. a couple but i know there's a lot and he's building on all of them and so you can kind you feel like it's part of a lengthy tradition and he did all of the like work watching all of those old films and researching them and then we're sort of the beneficiary of this like ultimate remix that is like spaghetti westerns and like kurosawa japanese films and like all this stuff 
that get funneled into his brain. And it's like, I don't know the original, but I've seen the remix and I can recognize that it's a remix. And I kind of just like that. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll add that the, the cinematography is above reproach. Like, like I, I, um, I, I think the cinematography is masterful and amazing. It is a beautiful film or beautiful films. And, and the, the cinematography is, is never lacking in it. I do gently push back on my esteemed colleague, Ron, in that uh, I, I kind of get the impression that he recorded a film that was really too big and went, oh, crap, this is going to be four hours. Wow, we'll make it into two films. And the first film is very, very violent. The second film has character building. I'll concede that. But throughout all, excellent cinematography. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a pushback. I, I think that, yeah, he made something long and decided to make it two films. So are you pushing back kind of that his that pushback out. isn't pushback right now? Exactly. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. It's an unback. <laughs> I unbacked him very hard. I want conflict. <laughs> now that we've covered the entirety of the two films, I'm going to go back to the beginning. Now, first of all, again, I, I thought I had watched the first film before Guy and I did it for the podcast. I had not. I'd just seen so much stuff about it. And there's a documentary that I'm going to, I've recommended in our previous episode, and I'm going to recommend it again. There's a documentary called Double Dare, which is amazing because it is a woman who was the stunt double for Xena, Warrior Princess, or whatever that show was called. Mm -hmm. And they started doing a documentary about her while she was doing the Xena show. And then Xena ended, and she came to LA. You know, that was in New Zealand or. I think, uh, New Zealand. And so she came to LA trying to get a job. Her career was totally stalled. She connected up with this family of famous stunt performers called the, uh, their Eppers, Espers, something. The mother of the family who's like in her sixties became her mentor. And you're watching all this. And then she goes up for being the stunt person for Uma Thurman in this film. And she gets the job. And, and one of the, amazing scenes in the documentary is the phone call she gets where she's they they're filming it when she's told that she got the job for kill bill and they're like yeah so you know you're going to be thrown through walls and you know you're going to have uh cabinets crashed on you and all this and her face just glows and it's this huge grin and she's so happy <laughs> and and then you know this of course is a career-changing thing for her to be in in what's now one of the most famous you know action films ever as as a stunt double so anyway i highly recommend that documentary but the thing that just really gets me watching the beginning of this is tarantino is so flexing his muscles right because first of all we get this weird like shaw scope thing with japanese characters and then we get the our feature presentation, oh, yeah. which is like out of a bizarre '60s, you know, film. And then, and this is where I think he's really doing it. It says fourth film by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Now nobody ever does that. Nobody has ever in the history of films said this is my fourth <laughs> film. And what he is saying is, you know what? This is my fourth film, and it's only my fourth film. And you know what? I know exactly what I want to do, and I'm going to take you on this journey, and, and you are going to enjoy it. I mean, he is just putting it out there. Hmm. And then every single scene and everything he does in this film is just so confident and so assured, and it's just freaking incredible. I, you know what? I, that hadn't occurred to me, but you're right. Like I've never read a book where you open it up and it says, to Martha. And then you open up the next page and it says, fifth book 
by <laughs> Bill Bryson or whatever. Like that that's kind of balls. I don't out, know what you're talking right? about. Every time uh, I tell a joke on stage, I'm like 107th joke by Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Yeah. I like I I don't know. I I, I like the yeah, the confidence, the cockiness, and also just like he is like a such a unapologetic like film school nerd. And I I don't know. I find that endearing. Do 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 you all? Because I'm with Sarah. I do not know the the influences at all. I've not gone to film school. I, I can barely speak film. You'll notice I said Uma Thurman earlier rather than the name of the actual character. Uh, she did, I can well, tell you, that there's spaghetti westerns. Like, isn't that part of the thing? Yeah, oh. but we don't know her name. Yeah, what, what, what does, well, does wait? Hold on, doesn't Bill call her? Well, we, uh, uh, what is it? Shot? No, um, it's kiddo. Kiddo, yeah, isn't, isn't kiddo, her surname yeah. kiddo? Like it's both no, her like name an is Beatrice. They actually make a big deal of her name in the second film, and they call her B and Beatrice. Oh yeah. yeah, the first one they bleep out her name a couple of times. That's right. Yeah. And then oh, I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah, I will be honest. By the way, I have a confession to make. I watched, I thought we were just going to talk about the first one. I have seen both. I have seen both, but I haven't seen the second one in a little while. So just, could we do this podcast, but just like no spoilers? <laughs> uh, Sarah, I am very disappointed in you. I, for the record, have watched both films four times in preparation okay, for we this get discussion. It, I actually <laughs> took two days off work. It's all I did. I did about 80 milligrams of Adderall and watched Brown every frame of this Whatever, film. Whatever, man. I get, I, get, I get the spirit of these films, okay? I don't have to do the work. I know what's going on on the subconscious level, okay? No, I have seen I have seen volume two. It's just I, like maybe five mm-hmm. years ago or something. So they get married at so, the so end, right? If they get married, it's like a it, it, yeah, it was yeah, all exactly. a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it. As I recall, her and Bill are on this ship that's sinking, and then Bill starts playing a cello and says (laughs) it was a pleasure fighting with you, and then they sink, and I, uh, something like that. I actually have a very comparable level of rewatching with Sarah on this. I'm not being a film nerd, though. I don't know who the various influences are on Tarantino. Um, I can tell Spaghetti Westerns. Based mm-hmm. entirely on the soundtrack, which is which always stands out. All, all Tarantino films, uh, he really, really puts a shoulder to the soundtrack. I know there's something interesting Japanese going on because mm-hmm. there's a moment where we go into anime or not anime. It's not like comic book, uh, comic book style. You might have used that term earlier, Ron, but I didn't know what it meant, uh, and I just nodded. Of Sha, oh yeah, I think. So, do you all know the influences that he is that he is channeling? Oh, I know some of them. For example, there's a whole sequence when in the second film when she's in that trailer where the guy gets killed with the snake eventually and all that. And you have all these shots of the door of the trailer. That is straight out of The Searchers, which is a John Wayne film. The very end, he goes out of this door and you have the desert thing outside. He also uses that in Inglorious Bastards. He loves that shot because there's... I'm pretty sure. I think he's used that multiple times. When he did this film, Wirework, which is, you know, very much a Japanese slash Chinese technique, you know, where someone's on wires and they spin around or they go up in the air, that was still relatively rare in the United States. So he was Mm, kind of bringing the concept of Wirework to here. And so you have these shots where people will jump up two stories or... She'll run up the, <laughs> you know, the balustrade of a, a thing or whatever. And, and and we haven't seen that before in the U.S. Um, too much. 
I think this, you know, an early film to bring that. Yeah, it was. It was like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because that was a yeah. really, really big eye popper, and then this. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Wait, and, so so, know, so back on the film nerd bit, then okay, I, I'm I'm now I'm now coming up with a theory that that is making a lot of this make more sense to me because I watched Kill Bill one last night. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you all have any architect friends? Where like this this is in my experience, you walk down the street with an architect and you go, God, look at that ugly ass building. That building is so ugly. Why can't they just build pretty neoclassical buildings like ninety percent of the American public wants? And the architect mm. will invariably say, Oh no, look, the structure of that's coming out and the harmonics are visible, and they'll speak a bunch of architecture bullshit that's only available to <laughs> other architects. The same thing happened. Like a lot of my music friends will like get really into music, and then they get into these weird discordant tones everybody hates except other musicians. Because you have to have this really upper level knowledge, to, or like the the painting equivalent is you look at a horrible painting, but then you talk to a painter and they're like, Jesus Christ, look at the brush strokes. This is brilliant. Like, and, and it's this. So I, I feel no. like that's what's going no, on here. Then, I don't no, have no. the film capacity to understand Let it. Thurman Hot music good. <laughs> that works on all levels. Like I think. I think this is like, this is a more widely. I'm overthinking. Yeah. And also to answer your question about like getting the film references, whether we get the film references. So I was in Japan a month ago for two weeks. And because I've been to Japan for two weeks, I know everything about Japan now. Yeah. Did you save their people? I did. Did you, did you save their they people for so a bit of destruction, happy Sarah? that I discovered Japan, actually. That's great. That's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> no, I felt like Uma Thurman because I'm like, almost uh hmm. six feet and I, and for any of the people who can't see me right now for the podcast i'm gorgeous and just, <laughs> so i'm like tall and blonde and i was like a full like six seven inches above the average height like there at least for women maybe like five inches for the guy it was crazy i didn't have hmm. to kill as many though that was good but i um nice there i made Hashtag not racist. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Where's my Nobel Prize? Okay. So just one tiny little but somewhat relevant tangent. To get myself psyched to go to Japan, I decided to listen to this amazing six-part series about Japan in World War II. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Strongly recommend it. Supernova in the East. Anyway, it's 12 hours worth of No spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, are you in for a surprise? It actually ends. They all get married at the end. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I I was about to do a really bad Japanese accent no. and say it was a pleasure fighting with you as I made a cello motion, but I went, no, nah, it's a bit too much. I'm gonna hold back. So I was watching, listening to this like Rick and Dunn's podcast, which don't ever go to Japan and uh, listen to the involvement of Japan in the Pacific Theater because um, it's not good. They were me. They were very mean. Mm. And to put it maybe diplomatically, but it's a really good podcast. So I'm listening. I'm on the subway. I'm listening to this podcast surrounded by Japanese people on the subway. And all of a sudden, my Bluetooth headphones stop working and it starts playing out loud on my phone. And it's like the Japanese like raped on Chinese. It's like the rape. And I'm just and it's it, you know what? It's like that thing. Where your phone's always in the last pocket you check of like your giant coat. I'm just like scrambling in all of my pockets <laughs> to be like, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Japan. Related to that, I got to go to Tokyo also a few years ago and it was an amazing experience. But I, 
I will say everybody I know who has spent significant time in Japan, who like went there and taught English or, you know, whatever, say, yeah, when you're there as like a tourist, everybody's really yeah. nice to you and everybody's really polite, which they absolutely were to me. They're like, no, they hate you. And the racism is huge. And I actually had like a white guy was like, I'd never experienced yeah. racism until I was a teacher in Japan. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. so weird. And that's actually mm-hmm. something he gets, Tarantino gets right in a couple of moments in Kill Bill, like a really anti whiteness, which is just like refreshing as like a white person to like experience that. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, the the old master, Pai Mei, he hates uh, he hates Americans and Caucasians and, and women. Yeah. So she's <laughs> got the trifecta And she's all there. those things. But like, it's what's what's interesting about it is like, I was thinking about this on the plane home, where it's like, okay, so non-white people can be racist, and I thought we Americans kind of had like a monopoly on it. So does that make me double racist? Because I assume <laughs> non-white people aren't as good as we are at racism, but they are. They're good at it. <laughs> they can. My my every once in a while, when you're traveling through Britain or Europe, you'll meet somebody that will like with a couple of drinks in them. Go, you know, I don't really like Americans. And what I always do is go, my God, you mean like African Americans? And they're like, no, 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 oh, no, no. Oh my God. And I'm like, what about like eight, eight Asian Americans? Because again, we're a very diverse country. No, Asian, they're fine. They're fine. What about like like uh, Hispanics? Oh, lovely, lovely people. Then I'm like, who do you not like? And then they always go, well, you know, like loud white people with guns and cowboy hats. And I'm like, yes, it's Texas. Everybody hates Texas. Have them. Texas hates Texas. Just say you hate Texas and move on with your life, Europe. Snaps. One of the things I find amusing is I watch a lot of British TV shows and stuff. So especially in the past. Whenever they'd have an American character, they would, you know, speak like a Texan, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the only, and be anti-abortion and all this. That's the yeah. only American they, they understood. It was funny. I, yeah. I saw a play years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where they were, it was, it was, this is how much of a dork I am. I went to go see I Am Roddenberry, the wow. Gene Roddenberry story. Uh, at the Edinburgh wow. Fringe. It was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I can't remember if I'd, if I'd lost my virginity. I'm sure it grew back during the course of that particular play. <laughs> uh, and... What what I recall is that all of the actors who were Scottish doing Americans, like like this is how they had Shatner talk. I'm William Shatner. A pleasure to be here. Like they all <laughs> <laughs> like like Shatner was Texan. Like Mark oh, it was great. One man show. Foghorn, Leghorn, Shatner. The missed opportunity. Shatner is the easiest. Everybody has a Shatner. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. It's positive. It's like Christopher like Walken of Canada. So getting us back to the actual films we're talking yes. about, uh, <laughs> one of the things that really struck me that I wish I had understood. So for the first 30 years of my life, I intensely, intensely wanted to be a fiction writer, and it just never worked. One of the things that really impresses me about what Tarantino does in pretty much all of his films, but especially here, is that he has this rare understanding of his story versus his the emotional arc he wants to have. So... What someone, you know, what a amateur writer like me would try to do is, oh, I want to, you know, you want to have this certain arc and you have the story. So at every particular point, you want to fit the story into the arc. And that's not what Tarantino does. He knows the arc he wants. You know, I want this kind of energy at the beginning, the middle, the end. And he has a story and he simply takes the moments from the story that fit into that point in the arc and he puts them there. So it doesn't matter if this part of the story happens two hours from now in the movie. 
He just puts it right in the beginning because it fits the arc that he wants to do. And so it's really, Mm -hmm. and then you kind of have to watch the film almost two times to understand what's going on because, you know, in the first five minutes, you're seeing something from the end of the film and then you're seeing something from halfway into the film and then you're seeing, and it's just because that's what fits at this point in what he wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I think that's pretty amazing. And I, I wish I had understood that when I was if, a if, if I'm person. if I'm following you, because that is a really interesting point, Ron. It's that that the, the sort of the surface level normal engineering that we have of a story arc is the plot development of A to B right. to C to D. Where, whereas I think if I if I'm understanding you correctly, he's doing an emotional arc. Of, yeah. I am now dealing. These are the feelings that I'm dealing with. And that, they led into these feelings, and they might be completely disjointed from the chronology of it, but we're but we're 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 dealing with that deeper tectonic level of the emotions that have been evoked. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I think what Ron is trying to say is that it's much better if you watch the first one, but you don't watch the second one, but you yeah, watched yeah, yeah. it five years yeah. ago, and so now, right? Plot, yes, I think that's what he means. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes. Hey, Sarah, don't Ron explain to me. I'm fucking sick of you ronsplating. You know, it's um I I don't know. The, like I I on some level just like the way it's like a music video. Like it's just kind of channels of feeling. Like do you find it cathartic, you know, watching a movie like this just thinking about like the times you've been fucked over and like there's just like very little justice in the world. So it's like you have it through film. I didn't yeah. get a big cathartic burst from this film, but I have got it from other uh, other Tarantino films. Like I, I love *Inglorious Bastards*. I, it is something of a guilty pleasure to me, but like I, I really do enjoy *Inglorious Bastards*. Wait, why is it guilty? Because everyone else is pro-Nazi, and you're the only anti-Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think I I am so hesitant to like such hyper violence because I do worry. What is it about me that's enjoying this violence? Right. Is it is it is it that there is a a violent part of me that I am suppressing normally, and now has a like th- this is like a glossed over, laminated, socially acceptable way for me to go to the gladiator pits and watch people torn apart? Is that what's happening here? So that worries me a little bit, which is why it's a guilty pleasure. But I I do feel that sense of catharsis when I watch uh, Inglorious Bastards. I think when I watch is it Hollywood Story or a Hollywood Once Tale? Once upon a time in Hollywood. Once, once yeah. upon a time in Hollywood, I, I get a bit of that. I don't know how much of this is bread and circuses, gladiator. I enjoy watching people die for my own amusement, but they're not really dead, so I don't need to feel ethically weird about it. Yeah. Versus how much of it is catharsis. I've been thinking about this a lot, Ron. If I start talking about a different movie, will I violate one of the rules of the we'll podcast? Be fine. Also, can I drop the <laughs> f word because I've been doing that? And I don't know what no, the policy is. No, uh, we're fine. Uh, when we started the podcast, I was very pure because I want, and it doesn't matter. We've given up okay. on all that. So everything okay, goes. You can talk about other movies. You can swear. Fucking <laughs> great. So Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Um, so about like one of my favorite parts about Inglorious Bastards is that like um, Tarantino shows the Germans watching the film within a film about like, you know, that German soldier who shoots a bunch of allies and they're all like. You know, it's like this like su- stupid propaganda film and like we're watching them laughing and like enjoying the way he's like mowing down the allied forces. And that is Tarantino saying this is you. You know, like what I liked about Inglorious Bastards <laughs> was it was like a Tarantino talk. Like it's all of his movies are somehow like they 
the violence is part of it, as opposed to a lot of action movies where it is gore porn. Somehow I find Tarantino's mm-hmm. is like making you think about the violence, which is why it's the only gory huh. movie I like. I don't really like any other gory movies. So there's that. And then it's also like sometimes I think like our species was evolved to see a lot more death and gore than we do in our lives. And you oh. see through these like gory things where like people's lives are at stake. You see people at their most extreme. And I think like we're all curious what are humans like in their these extreme moments. And so I kind of understand it. I feel the same way though he and I empathize with like I really don't like when people kind of enjoy violence too much because I'm like, yeah, you're no better than like the the worst parts of human history, the rape of Dan King, the Holocaust, like any sort of like adoration of violence, like we should get away from that. But I think this is like trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. Hopefully. That's interesting. No, I, I think you're right because it is, it is evocative and it does make you think. I don't think I really, I, I watched um, Taken with Liam Neeson for some reason on silent. I don't remember why, that it was just it's me loud. like drinking whiskey, watching him beat the shit. It was, yeah, no, I, I think there was like a party going on or something. Like I could definitely piece together what was happening as, as a site, like as a very, very violent Charlie Chaplin film, which is how I interpreted it. <laughs> but I don't remember questioning the nature of the violence. When I watch Tarantino films, I do really think about that. I think you're right, Sarah. I think that the the violence has a a kind of discursive element to it that is built into the DNA. And one of the good things, by the way, about referencing another film while talking about this film is that Ron and Guy will invite you on for another podcast about that film. <laughs> I did with Kill Bill, sort of like insurance. Exactly. Nice. Uh, the thing I kind of appreciate about Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in both cases, in the end, and I, uh, I'm trying to think if there's a third or he's going to do a third. But anyway, he's kind of saying, this is what I want to have happened. Yes. Right? I want the Nazis yes. to have been killed and Hitler yeah, to have been Django killed. Yeah, Django Unchained. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, probably it's reasonable to say that's the third part of the trilogy is, is Django Unchained. So, yeah, he's basically saying, mm. I, I want to change history. This is what I want to have happened. And he's just having fun. And I think, you know, the huge hit on Tarantino from critics always when he'd have these interviews and everything was, oh, you're encouraging violence, you're encouraging this. And it's like, he's just trying to make a fun film. He just wants people to have fun. And he understands that violence is part of fun. And again, I think even though these came later than what we're talking about, the John Wick films kind of illustrate this, right? I mean, John Wick films are, and I had no interest in watching John Wick for years because I knew it was very violent and I'm not really interested in violence. But then I watch them and it's just this pure celebration. It's just joy because it's just this expression and we're all going to go along with this. It's not an acceptance of, yeah, no, I don't really want to go out and kill 200 people. But I enjoy watching somebody who can go out and kill 200 bad people. Can I ask something (laughs) I've never asked before, but I've always been so curious about? How do you guys feel about... The fact that, like, your kind men, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I love what you did with civilization. But wait, you're uh, identifying me? Oh, I'm you so don't, sorry. You I'm don't so know. Sorry. How I, I don't cancel. Um, how do you guys <laughs> literally feel about like the way that you know? Imagine if the role reverse 
And like Uma Thurman was a guy who killed like 88 women. <laughs> like, like that would be really a very different film. It was like pretty disturbing. But it's like, it's not as bad. And it's almost like kind of like a feminist strong thing when it's like a right. woman. I mean, kind of like, you know, self-defense a little bit, like killing 88 guys. There's just like <laughs> when you see a guy killed on screen, it's just not as much of like a zing. As like when you see a girl killed on screen and like, how do you now, to be fair, she does kill she some women, women in this. And, and Tarantino oh, kills women, few, yeah. like, you know, in Django Unchained, you know, mm-hmm. I, that's one of the most like graphic scenes for me is when he just shoots that woman and she like somehow flies off screen. Um, <laughs> but it really shocked me because I wasn't expecting him to do it. So like, yeah, he, Tarantino kills a lot of women in his film. He's more egalitarian than like John Wick, for example. But like usually when a woman is killed on screen for the most part it's like this is like a big plot point that was like a character we knew whereas there's just like a lot of henchmen who get murdered how do y'all feel about that personally i i don't think i draw a big distinction i i just if the person has it coming you know it doesn't matter what's between their legs you're me. so egalitarian but, about uh, who gets murdered i feel like i just heard Sam Elliott give a talk about like murdering people. Oh my god, <laughs> it is so true, guys. But so to familiar. Harvard to gender studies class. Oh my god, god, yeah. Brief <laughs> tangent on that, guy. Like, I really want you to just like talk about the frontier just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guy's a big fan of Deadwood, so yeah. Oh yeah, in Red Dead Redemption. Have yeah, you seen Westworld, guy? The original I saw in the drive-in when I was like three or four years old. My parents took me to age-inappropriate movies at a young age. I haven't seen the HBO Westworld. I've heard, I've heard mixed things about it. I've heard it yeah. started strong and got a little diluted later, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. Do people just assume you're wise because of your voice? <laughs> I, uh, if they do, they keep it to themselves. I just always picture a guy is recording this in his kitchen while stirring chili. <laughs> I, There's just always a big pot of wolf brand you don't chili. Imagine I, him, like, I actually, I'm in my oh, kitchen. I imagine I'm not spinning, cooking anything spinning a yarn on his porch, sort of looking out, you know, onto the rant and, um, teaching the celeb. <laughs> it's too bad he can't see him because he has this great little sort of, White Perf- beard, of kind of you know, Santa Claus esque. Yeah, yeah, guy, you 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 could you could start a side. I'm going to keep going with this. You could start a side <laughs> company where people text you, "I'm having a tough time with X," and then you spit it into an aphorism, and then like I call it, you're like, you know, sometimes to make an omelet, you got to break some plates. Oh yeah, and you're like, man, that's deep. <laughs> Thanks, about- thanks, guy. Talk about breaking wild horses at some point. I feel like that. Every stallion's <laughs> got to be tamed. Uh, but back to your uh, initial question, I uh, I hadn't that that thought had not occurred to me. It's a, it's a really good question of if the genders were re- re- reversed and we have like Owen Wilson, I guess <laughs> is is the the equivalent of the nineties. Maybe Owen Wilson is just plowing down women with a sword. I don't know that that would consciously make me bothered by it. I think that it helps that the film is so cartoonish that it is over the top. That we're we're seeing this in this very light when when he when when Uma Thurman cuts off Sophie's arm and she's just flailing and, and blood shooting <laughs> out of her like a fountain. It's so over the top that it kind of the, the garishness of it in some way insulates you from the death rather than contemplating the death itself. 
So I, I suspect that in that context, I would probably side with Guy. Where where I tend to get uncomfortable is like, if you can tell the director is baiting you to really enjoy it, like if if uh, if there was something, if, if the shots were kind of sexual or something, and it's sort of like tempting right. you to give into this dark, weird, that, that would that would bother me. But I think if it was just a, a massacre of ladies with a sword. And it's it, a good point. <laughs> other than feet, and by the way, we talked about this when we talked about the other episodes. Once you have heard that Tarantino is into feet, you can't unsee it when you watch it. She <laughs> the movies are so many feet shots. But she yeah. shot a lot of so feet. many feet she shots. She shot a lot of legs that would then cause people to fall and then yeah. shoot their heads and then cut off a lot of feet in the crazy '88 <laughs> scene. So yeah, there's both feet <laughs> adoration and just feet degradation in these films. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate that he pulls off in this is that. There are some films like the last Charlie's Angels film, which was apparently not good. I didn't actually see it, but I saw a lot of pieces of it and everything. You have these little tiny women, you know, like punching these 300 pound men and, you know, sending them across the room or whatever. And it's just ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. And one of the things I preach about Tarantino, especially with all the women who are, you know, fighters in this film, it never feels like he's cheating. It never feels like, oh, here's this little woman, you know, punching a 300 pound man and he's supposed to react. Like they actually fight in a way that makes sense. And, Hmm. you know, you feel that, yeah, they, they would kill this person if that person were there. It's not that this is a stunt guy who now needs to pretend that he's been hit, you know, by this little woman. I think that's partly a function of sharp objects. (laughs) <laughs> which work yeah. against man and woman alike, you know, strength is less of a thing. Right. <laughs> but it is funny in this kind of film, right? Like, if anyone brought in a machine gun, the whole film would be over, yeah. right? <laughs> but we have to oh, have swords yeah. what on if one of them? Yeah, God, God yeah. bless Japanese gun control. It would have really been a weird third those, act. Like, people was just like, oh, yeah, guns. I forgot guns. Why did we bring this truncheon? I Brought my God! Ah, I'm such an idiot. Sarah, can I can yeah. I can I lob a, a, a gendered yeah. question back at you? The the protagonist is a woman. Yeah. She is fighting lots and lots of men. I I didn't like. I, I think of like um, Mad Max Fury Road as the best feminist film I've mm. ever seen because it's mm. all very well developed female characters that are empowered that are driving the plot forward, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think it's like a really really. So I watched I watched Mad Max Fury Road and I was like, this is an awesome film. It's a really good feminist film. I didn't really think of Kill Bill when I watched it uh, in a gendered capacity. I thought of it more as a revenge film. But it is a lady that's that's killing a ton of people. Did you see it as kind of like a, a feminist exegesis or, or a feminist catharsis? Or, or am I reading far too much into it? I mean, yeah, because like, you know, there are certain elements that can't be avoided. She was pregnant when they thought they'd killed her. Mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. raped continually while in a coma. Um, and then there's that, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. sexual thing with bill so and then the way bill is sort of like a pimp you know to like these assassins in some way so like there are gendered components i would agree like very much in comparison to mad max it's not quite as gendered it's really more like you know it's driven by a plot that's a little bit more revengey than it is driven by feminist rage because she also like she doesn't know that her daughter's alive in the first one And so it's not even like mama rage, which is like a whole other, you know, type of gendered um, motivation. So, yeah, not as gendered as Mike Mad Max, 
But I think also for like the for the history of film, it was it pushed the needle uh, like quite a lot. Like now, I think this was like from like the late '90s or early 2000s or something like that. So it pushed the needle like in the sense that we hadn't seen too many ultra violent female protagonists. And what's interesting also, the other reason I was thinking about it in a gendered sense is because, you know, one of the executive producers was Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, you see that on yeah. the opening title cards, don't you? And you're like, holy shit. Well, he made a lot of great films. Right. You know, the weird thing that is hard to uh, wrangle with and a lot of great great feminist films. And then, you know, you, there, were some, there was some story of Tarantino being like really aggressive on set and making... Uma Thurman do a stunt herself, which the like the stunt crew said was unsafe, and it, and she injured herself for years uh, because she hurt her back like driving oh. a car. And so there's like some elements of the like meta narrative around the film that are a little bit gendered. So it's just you know I, I thought about it a little bit in that lens, but mostly I just like i don't know i was thinking more about like the dispensability of men maybe because i've been listening to this podcast about <laughs> the pacific theater and world war ii but it's like there's just like scores of men get killed regularly in movies like john wick and stuff and it's just like i don't think i've ever seen a film and like in you know there's lots of violence against women in the real world but i don't think i've ever seen a film where like more than 10 women died you could say like maybe like the Titanic, but then that's like what right. has there ever but been a film where you're seeing the deaths uphand though? Yeah, I think a truly feminist like violent film deaths, yeah. is where two hundred women die. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I was just thinking about. It. Yeah, I can't think of anything like that off the top of my head. I think it's just you know there's a there's a dispensability thing you know that is sad but true is like how we live life you know men signing up for war and it's reflected to a certain extent in the fiction and the you know art we consume where it's like when you want a just like a dead body to happen you know it's going to be a guy whereas if it's a woman it's usually like yeah. there's some story there like why is she there why is she getting right. killed you know or, or or it illustrates that this the person that committed it is particularly right. based Oh, they killed a woman. They went over the line. Yeah. I think you're also right, mm. Sarah, and the, the audiences do react differently. I, I don't recall what it was we were working on, but when I was in New York and we, we were working on some comedy sketch, it was going to involve somebody getting shot. And I remember, like, it was it, it was probably you or me. You were like, better to have it be you <laughs> or, or some guy <laughs> because you you were like, audiences don't like seeing a girl die. Like, like just like, because like, you, 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 were, you were fresh out of mod at, at UCB. Sarah was at, at kind of the peak of sketch comedy in New York City. And was talking about her experiences and that like just audiences don't like a girl dying. If you're going to have somebody die at a live theater show, have it be a dude. I think I just and like I didn't want to. I think I just like wanted to be alive for the rest of the scene. And I was just giving you a line. <laughs> <laughs> Do I need to go back through all of my Siskin notes? My 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 weathered uh, tear stained Siskin notes where I read over it and go, OK, now she said this on April 30th. All right, I got to check. It was all just bullshit, all bullshit. Just so you could keep your costume yeah, the all same. Those sketches, those like artistic sketches I wrote for you, where you had to like serve me food, was really just because I was hungry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the killing of women in in media is it's something that's kind of in both modern thinking, you know, where if you kill too many women, it's going to be misogynistic, 
And old school thinking where even if men treated women horribly in some ways, there was at least a cultural veneer of, you know, women are sacrosanct. They're the mothers, they're mm. the daughters and so forth. So you don't get too crazy with uh, being violent against them in the movies and the books and all that. So, so I think, you know, which I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying, oh, it's unfair. The guys are easy targets for media, but, uh, but I think. I think there's a continuity where whichever, whether you're old school or new school or something else, there is a kind of stigma against you don't want to be seen as having inordinate enthusiasm for killing It's interesting. I was just this thinking like the only places where you really see women get killed regularly are like daytime crime shows where like a woman is like raped and then her skin is torn off and used to make a pillowcase and like, you know, the cops are investigating it and it's like really violent like and often the victims are women like law and order svu type stuff and you know what's crazy about those yeah, silence of the lambs yeah exactly and you know what's crazy about those shows is like the audience is all women like women fucking yeah. love daytime crime shows and podcasts about women getting <laughs> murdered it's so weird life man so interesting <laughs> This, see, this, this makes me think that one of us needs to trademark some phrase like the, the Goldilocks corpse <laughs> or like the, the the two to seven ratio or something. This is what I'm thinking. Based on what you're saying, Guy, I think it's a two to seven ratio. Kill two women for every men. And you, you don't avoid right. being yeah. a retro anti-feminist where women are untouchable, in which case you're putting them on a, a pedestal. Or going the other way of like, yeah, look at all those dead women, right? Right. So two to seven. Right. That's I, the think, ratio. I think the three myths compromise yeah. is open now. You can probably take that. <laughs> Good yeah. call. Yeah. That has a ring to it. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Is separate but equal. I think that that also <laughs> that's good. It's been great being on Rod's last episode, huh? Yeah, before we go too far down this path. So let me take us to the end of the film. So I already mentioned that, you know, I think the whole second film is subverting your expectations. Because, again, you're going in expecting a John Wick, you know, I'm going to kill, you know, everybody film. And actually you get very much character development. And then the whole, like, last half of the film is her encounter with Bill. You could not possibly expect what happens, right? So first of all, her daughter is there, her four-year-old daughter. And also, Bill is an amazing father. I mean, he is so good with his daughter, which, of course, makes you sympathetic to him, even though he's this awful, terrible killer who shot her in the head <laughs> in, the, in the very beginning of the films. And then he gives her all this time to spend time with her daughter before they have their final fight. And their final fight should be this, like, 30-minute-long special effects extravaganza and instead it's like two minutes and then he's dead i mean so i just there's something really interesting to me there like it, it so subverts what you're expecting to happen yeah i think like bill himself is also kind of maybe i don't know i don't know maybe my brain's too much in a gendered space right now but it's also like the whole like nice guy thing except for the whole shooting her in the head part like <laughs> that is such a thing like you're so focused on the shooting yeah, like, her in the head. Over it already. No, I mean, like, that's such a thing where it's like, you know, oftentimes, like, really violent or horrible people can be really fucking charming and nice and kind and, like, good oh, in yeah. other situations. Yeah. 
And, you know, that character makes you wrangle with it. Like, he's a fucking assassin pimp and shot her in the head. It was like murdered so many people. But he's so good with the daughter, you know? Like, <laughs> it's just one last way to make I'm with Sarah. I'm with yeah. you 100% here. I, I don't know whether this is me being a judge's kid or me being autistic or both. But I cannot suspend judgment when I watch films or television shows. So, like, I, we just I just finished watching House of the Dragon, and there's a moment where uh, the the new spoilers the new king Sarah is this going to spoil it for I you? I mean, no, go, no, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> okay, so so the 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 new king is being crowned, and a lady crashes in and and murders thirty people, like 30, 50 people, all die as this dragon crashes granite on top of them, and they're all dying there. And and then she just like nods at them and flies out to prove a point. She doesn't do oh. thirty people die for her to make a gesture, and I'm like, woman's a monster, and no one else in the world thinks like this except for me. Uh, and I'll like there was some sci-fi program called I think it was uh, Station Eleven or something yeah. about like a traveling Shakespearean troupe, uh, and the main character who is a terrorist who straps landmines to kids and has them hug his enemies turns out to have had a tough childhood. Yeah. And he has an emotional character arc. So at the end, they let him go because it turns out he's a good dude. It's like, no. Like if if Darth Vader had survived and like come back with Luke, I would have been like, all right, we got to try him for war crimes. Now he blew up a fucking planet. It doesn't matter that he's made amends with his son. Christ's I sake. love this rant so much. There's a really great uh, Cracked podcast where this guy, Jason Pargolin, I think his name is, talks about how what does a movie have to do to justify somebody getting killed. And it's really great when you review movies like in Jurassic Park, a lawyer is like kind of a dick. And so he gets eaten. He gets like bitten in half <laughs> by a T-Rex. Yeah. And that's supposed to be like, kind of like, okay, because he was mean. <laughs> because yeah. he's like, he yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. He was like dismissive. He, he thought poor people should have coupon day. That's worth being bisected by a dinosaur. Of course, you know, if a woman had sex. <laughs> oh, I that's mean, a classic yeah. one. Yeah. Anytime there's like sick, <laughs> oh, kind of yeah. slutty woman, it's like murder. And like, we, as an audience, we're like, yeah, well, she did have sex with that guy, you know? <laughs> It, it's so weird what like what is justification, but then the inverse is what you're talking about, Heaton, which is like, oh wow, I mean he slaughtered a thousand people, but like he's so nice to that four year old though. Come on, come on, yeah. Daddy's a great dad. Okay, so we have to come to our ultimate question in these podcasts, you know, because this is now a somewhat old film. So, is it worth watching for a modern audience? So, Sarah, would you recommend this to your friend? Well, given that I recommended it to us to watch for this podcast, <laughs> yes, I, it still holds up. No, definitely. Um, I think it definitely holds up. It's like, one, as we get further and further away from the references that Tarantino was referencing in this film, it's helpful to keep them alive. You know, and we have a mimetic mm -hmm. culture. I think it's really helpful to keep these remixes fresh in the sort of cultural memory. That's what this podcast is yeah, all about. <laughs> just like Tarantino. <laughs> so, yeah, I think for that reason, and if not for that, it's because Uma Thurman hot, is hot and the soundtrack is red. <laughs> <laughs> so, Heaton, are you going to disagree with that? <laughs> I, I think there's value in this film, but I would put this at the the tail end of the Tarantino canon. 
Hmm. I, I would, I would, I, I like Inglorious Bastards the most. Um, probably uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next, but that might just be a recency bias. Then Pulp Fiction, then Kill Bill one and two. Uh, I, uh, I, I do, I do think Kill Bill two is better than Kill Bill one. Wait, so so where's Reservoir Dogs? Oh gosh, no. In your list. No, wow. Okay. I think I, you want. I would place. The, I would place Reservoir Dogs ahead of Kill Bill as well. That's it. I think Reservoir Dogs has more more characterization. Uh, yeah, the 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 two to five yeah, ratio. No <laughs> yeah, the two to five ratio is off. There's not a lot of dead women. I like to see at least two dead women per <laughs> film. It's my my big problem with Golden Girls was the lack of corpses from women that were shown in it. Uh, but uh, I I would put this at the at the tail end of the the Tarantino verse. I I, I don't dispute that there's okay. masterful masterful directing that goes into it, but I think that there is less substance to it than his other works. All right, where are you at, guy? Oh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I uh, I just. You know, I didn't do too much thinking about it. I just sort of <laughs> went with the flow. I I enjoy, I mean, the violence, action in general, even if it's not over-the-top violence, I just, it isn't le- like in the Star Wars prequels. The parts that interested me most were like when they're talking about the dissolution of the Imperial yeah. the Republic Senate. And- the, the, the Trade Federation, or they're talking about the ombudsman, <laughs> and if they're going to have yeah. like the, 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 the reverse yeah. percent. Yeah. I, I have with a you. long-standing you- difference on the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you, guys. So- I like I would love to watch a, a Star Wars film that's just about the the governmental, like, oh my God, well, if you did that and evoked emergency powers, the vice chancellor would have to step <laughs> in with a coalitional government. I would love that shit. Yeah, yeah, I think we're simpatico on that. So I, what I enjoy most about Tarantino movies is when you get the snappy dialogue oh, and yeah. stuff like that, or the fun little cinematography yeah. tricks, like where he uses obviously... You know things that are obviously sets. Well, uh, like the point where at the beginning of the second film, she's she's narrating while she's driving oh, yeah. the car, and it's so obviously a filmed back, all that kind yeah, of stuff. The rear and also type the thing. Chinese guy that she goes to be trained by, and he has this big long white beard, and he keeps, you know, it's just like, yeah, and he keeps, you know, stroking it. It's just, so, you know. and it's pretty obviously not his real beard. You know, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's just um he he just he seems to have a lot of fun making movies and that carries through you know, it's evident to the viewer. So I yeah, I'd definitely say these are worth watching if if you have a stomach for a certain amount of gore because there is a good deal of it. Although uh as we mentioned earlier, uh some of it is just so over the top that it sort of bypasses your revulsion because you just see it and you know oh, that giant fountain isn't really you know accurate <laughs> yeah so where i come down on this first of all i think almost it's more interesting to someone who wants to be a filmmaker or wants to be involved because again it's so audacious and even you know we have a whole segment of the film where he does an anime film he doesn't do 30 seconds of anime he does an entire, I don't know, five, ten minute sequence of anime where he's like, okay, now I'm going to do the best anime film you've ever seen. I mean, it's so <laughs> audacious. I just appreciate it from a filmmaker standpoint, almost more than from a film you know, viewer standpoint. See, this is that architect thing I brought up earlier, though. Yeah. This is the, <laughs> I just, I want a neoclassical building. And all yeah. the architects like the one that looks like a spider because the structure's more honest or some shit. <laughs> right, right. Where, you know, 
I'm not a huge fan of all his films. Like, The Hateful Eight was fun, but not, you know, it it doesn't do a lot for me. The Hollywood one, I think, is actually a great film. It's probably better. I think it's maybe his best film. It's just amazing. But I would definitely recommend people watch these. And your reaction, it, it's kind of interesting because how you would view these now if you see them for the first time, as I have just seen them for the first time, is so different than it would have been 20 years ago. Because we didn't have, in the U.S., these hyper-violent and bloody films. Like I say, now we're all used to John Wick, et cetera. We, we understand, like, oh, we're going to have these films that every other person is being shot and having their head blown off and, you know, spurting blood, et cetera. At the time, it, it just wasn't like that. So it was an amazing thing. And then again, you know, people hadn't seen all this wire work where people could fly through the air and all that. I and mean, he was introducing so many things into the Western filmography, you know, that other people had been doing, but we hadn't seen so much of. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. All right. So we're, you know, this is almost the end of our rage season. After this, uh, Guy and I are going to talk about office space. <laughs> That'll be the, finally, the end of our rage season, which I think has been going on for about three years now. <laughs> <laughs> And then we're on to our next Doctor Who season. So, you know, all those Tarantino people who want to watch 1964 Doctor Who <laughs> listening to, to our podcast. So we'll see you all next week. Qué bonitos ojos tienes debajo de esas dos cejas. Debajo de esas dos cejas, qué bonitos ojos tiene. Ellos me quieren mirar, pero si tú no los dejas, pero si tú no los dejas, ni siquiera parpadear.